Welcome to Nostalgia Marcana. I'm your host, Doug Leaf. Each episode of this podcast, we will look back on the pop cultural ephemera that remains in our cultural zeitgeist today and try to understand why we remain enchanted all these years later. This week, we will be revisiting... After a record-breaking 35 years on Broadway, this autumn, it was announced that Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera would finally be closing. This is a record that is unequaled uh, in theater circles and may never again be equaled in our lifetime. Uh, This is an extraordinary piece of musical theater, and I think it's worth taking a look at, not only because it's, uh, of course, a retelling of a Halloween favorite Uh, The Phantom is a universal monster, both uh, small U and big U, Um, although he did not make it into the Monster Mash, unfortunately. Nevertheless, um, this is a story and a character that has clearly stood the test of time, Uh, and we'll be talking about this particular adaptation of it today because of its power. It's worth noting that uh, the ticket sales in Broadway were starting to flag, especially in the wake of the pandemic, which was why... Uh, the producers made the decision to finally close uh, the curtain on this one. Uh, And the second they announced it, of course, ticket sales went through the roof. Now, this is a nostalgia podcast, so before we get to talking about uh, this this musical and the story that spawned it, um, I, of course, want to talk about why this means so much to me. Uh, This is a story that is near and dear to my heart, uh, a personal favorite for many reasons. First and foremost... Uh, If you don't know me personally, uh, I'm a guy who spent a lot of time performing, and uh, I was bit, as uh, many performers are, by the theater bug, and the theater bug that bit me was seeing this show. My parents took me to see it uh, at the uh, Amundsen Theater in Los Angeles in 1988 when uh, it was touring uh, with Michael Crawford, who originated the role of the Phantom, and I had seen theater productions up to this point, you know, small uh, things in my hometown, but nothing that approached the scale uh, and musical power, uh, the pyrotechnics, the stage magic, uh, all of the um, artistic and technical things that made this come together. I'd just never seen anything like it, and I was blown away. Um, I immediately fell in love with it. Uh, I listened to the soundtrack a billion times. Um, and I became uh, you know fascinated with earlier adaptations of the story. Both I I read the original book. I saw several of the different movies that have been made out of this, and we'll be talking about that a little bit. Um, And uh, one of my most treasured memories and possessions involves this this tale. Um, By a stroke of incredible luck, my grandmother uh, was living in, or still lives, actually, she's 101, God bless her, um, lives in a retirement community, And a few doors down from her in the early 90s, a vacancy opened up and it was filled by a lady named Mary Philbin. Now, that name doesn't mean anything unless you know a lot about the Phantom of the Opera, but she played Christine in the original silent film, the famous one starring Lon Chaney. She played opposite him. And she just happened to move a few doors down after I had already been uh, gobsmacked by seeing uh, the Weber musical. So uh, she said, hey, would you like to meet her? And so I got to spend an hour chatting up 
a silent movie star, and I have her autograph. I got a, a this coffee table book that went along with the musical, and uh, of course, it talked about the history of the story. And so, I have a picture of her and Lon Chaney signed by her. And I don't know many people that could say they got a, a silent movie star's autograph. So uh, that that's just a very special connection between me and uh, the Phantom. So um, where to begin? I think the obvious place to start here is with the original novel published in 1909 by Gaston LaRue. When and, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber set about uh, making this musical, he watched the Lon Chaney movie, he watched the uh, 1940s remake starring Claude Rains, and he felt like he couldn't crack the story. Um, it just wasn't working until he went back and found an out-of-print copy of the original LaRue novel. And after that, he he had the inspiration he needed uh, to create this show. Um, I think th- that is important because although, as I mentioned, there have been many, many, many um, versions of The Phantom of the Opera over the years, um, both, uh, you know, serious ones and parody ones and, you know, the Scooby-Doo cartoons that have The Phantom of the Opera in it and, you know, uh, all kinds of places this character has shown up. Um Really, only the Lon Chaney silent movie and Andrew Lloyd Webber's show, those are the only ones that are true adaptations of the LaRue novel. Every other major adaptation of this story really only takes some key core elements of it um, and uses those. But as far as following the actual story and telling the beats, you're basically getting a phantom of an opera but not the Phantom of the Opera. Um, so going back to LaRue, the original, um, he uh, he's an interesting dude. He uh, he had inherited a fortune and then squandered it all gambling. And after that, he took up uh, a career as a writer and a journalist. And while he was working as a journalist, he ended up covering a story at the Opera Garnier, the Paris Opera House where the story is set. And... During that time, he learned about two interesting things that would ultimately come to be the inspiration for The Phantom. Uh, One, there was an instance in the late 1800s when uh, one of the counterweights from the chandelier crashed down into the theater and uh, killed um, a concierge who had just... It was her first day of work, actually, and that's how she died. Now, the actual chandelier never itself went crashing into the ground. But this gave LaRue the idea of, oh, what if what if the chandelier did crash and what if there was someone behind it? The other thing he learned about uh, that was a true life inspiration for the story is the underground lake. The Phantom, of course, famously lives uh, on the other side of a, a lake deep beneath the Paris Opera House. And there is one, sort of. It's a, what you would actually call a cistern. When the opera house was being built, it was close to an underground tributary of the Seine River. And because of that, as they were building it, the weight of the opera house kept causing water to flood into the bottom of it. And so they said, well, there's nothing we can do. We keep pumping the water out. It just keeps coming in. It's the Seine River. It's not going anywhere. So what can we do? We can contain it. So Charles Garnier uh, hit on this idea of building this subterranean lake, uh, you know, can basically to contain this water so it could be managed. 
Um, it is still there to this day. Parisian firefighters use it uh, for training, uh, for like diving in uh, pitch black um, situations. I'm not sure exactly why French firefighters would have a need for this, but um, that is what it is used for. Um, it has never, of course, played host to a real um, disfigured madman, as far as we know. But uh, those are the two things that Gaston LaRue used to uh, create his story. It was published serially uh, starting in 1909 and into 1910, and it was not a big hit. LaRue had uh, success with other stories. He was a primarily a mystery writer, kind of the French version of uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. And it wasn't really until the Lon Chaney movie was made that the story became, you know, kind of this uh, universally beloved classic. Lon Chaney was you know, the, nicknamed the Man of a Thousand Faces because of his genius with makeup, and he was coming off of uh, making a version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, speaking of uh, unfortunate-looking French people in love. And they said, well, you know, who else do we got? We got, uh, we got The Phantom of the Opera, and we got Cyrano de Bergerac. Which, uh, what do you want? Um, no, uh, but they did say they wanted to make another horror movie. They were interested in doing that, and they wanted Lon Chaney's makeup expertise. So this movie was uh, produced. It was a troubled production. They switched directors uh, midway through after shooting a bunch of it. The second director wanted to try and turn it into a comedy, of all things, which you know, clearly did not work. Um, and I want to give uh, some credit. I, I don't have her name here, but they gave it to a, a, an editor, and uh, it was a lady, which was... You know, Pretty unusual for that. Hell, that's unusual for Hollywood today, let alone uh, in you know 1925. But uh, she spliced together uh, what was left of both of these directors' work, and uh, and the classic we have is uh, there for you to see. It's actually on, I think it's on Amazon Prime, so you can check it out. Um, it might even be in the public domain at this point. The important thing about the Cheney version of the story, other than it really being a hit and popularizing everything, is it is. Again, other than uh, Weber's, the only one that really hews close to the actual story. The most important thing, I think, that it retains is that the Phantom is deformed from birth. Uh, every other version of this story, starting with the Claude Rains version of it that was done in the 40s, involves a man who is otherwise normal looking and then disfigured in some sort of an accident or, you know, someone throws acid in his face, things like that. And you can tell a story that way that is a revenge story, um, but it fundamentally changes, I think, the character of the Phantom. There is a difference between a person who has had their, you know, uh, appearance taken away and a person who has never known a day uh, of, of human kindness because of their unfortunate uh, visage. And for me, that is such an important distinction because it says a lot about who this character is, why he does the things he does, and especially why he is so desperate to try and win the heart of Christine. Getting to the Lloyd Webber musical... It does maintain that element. Uh, it gives us relatively little about the Phantom's background, but what it does give us is fairly similar to what is uh, in the original book, uh, in that he was a uh, a genius and a polymath, you know, uh, gifted in many different areas, not just music, but architecture. He was a trained assassin. 
Uh, he learned this, you know, in the court of Persia. He built for the Shah a maze of mirrors. All of these things that kind of give us the sense that this, uh, that the Phantom is, you know, a, an, you know, not just a a a threat, but uh, an exceptional threat because of his unusual intelligence and talent. And it also, I think, really underscores the tragedy of the Phantom. That, you know, they they that the story is keen to note that you know, but for his face this person could have been you know, one of the most influential people in history. He could have done so much to help people. He could have done so much to make the world a better place. Um, but he you know, was not uh, given that opportunity. But we shouldn't feel too sorry for him. Uh, I, I think the, the story you know, is, is about what we would now call an incel, an, you know, an involuntary uh, celibate person who is extremely angry and irrational. Uh, there is a lot of advertising around the Weber show. I remember like when they were uh, doing it at the Venetian in Las Vegas, a lot of the like billboards and things would show the phantom, you know, holding Christine and it would the word, you know, the words like be seduced or seduction would be talked about. This is not a seduction. Um, this is a man who lives in the, basement and gaslights a poor girl who is decades younger than him. And when he doesn't get his way, he starts murdering people left and right. So, you know, he is, you know, everything about him is, he's also very malevolent. Um, the, where I think people get lost is there is humanity in him. And what Weber's version does that none of the other ones do, even the Lon Chaney one, is it the, a key moment at the end, Christine kisses him, and it's not meant to be, I think, a kiss that of you know mutual love. She doesn't actually love this person. This person is threatening to kill her fiance, you know, as that as that is happening. Um, you know, no rational person would would feel this way about someone who's trying to murder another person. But what it does is it unlocks his humanity. It, it finally lets him know that the world isn't entirely a terrible place, that there is, you know, he, he is, he deserves at least some opportunity for kindness. And because he receives that kindness from her, that's when he lets her go. Um, he relents in his uh, evil schemes in both the original story and in the Weber version. Um, I want to take a minute to talk about all of the characters, uh, not just uh, the Phantom, of course, but the relationship is what we'll call a love triangle, even though, again, I think the the fans, P-H-A-N-S, who try to uh, ship Christine and the Phantom, I don't think that's really there. Um, and as proof, take a look at the sequel musical, Love Never Dies, which is premised on the notion that, in fact, they did love each other, and uh, the Phantom later uh, got busy with Christine and fathered a child. It's nonsense, uh, and, and the show never worked, and this is why. It's because this is a fundamental component that he is not, they are not in love with each other. Um, but anyway, so let's talk about, there's the Phantom, Christine, and Raul. Christine, uh, especially in the novel, she's young, she's naive, she is reeling from the death of her father, who promised he would, you know, a famous uh, a violinist uh, who told her, he would send her an angel of music. And lo and behold, one appears to Christine in the form of a disembodied voice that gives her singing lessons in her dressing room. Uh, 
This only works if you believe that Christine is naive, grief-stricken, and relatively religious. Otherwise, the first time you hear a disembodied voice coming from your dressing room and talking to you, you're either going to think, I'm crazy, or holy fuck, who's watching me? (laughs) Where is that voice coming from? Any sane person would think that. Um, Instead, Christine goes along with this and is entranced by him, and then the Weber musical is even somewhat hypnotized by him over and over. Um, Again, this does not speak to love. A person who loves another person doesn't manipulate them this way. They don't lie to them. They don't gaslight them. Um, They don't try to get them to do what they want by pretending to be a, uh, a deity or something like that. So, uh, but that is Christine, but ultimately she is, I think the hero of the story. Um, it is Christine who decides at the end of the musical to make herself, uh, she agrees to be bait to catch the phantom bravely. She is the one who decides to kiss him, uh, at the, at the key moment to show that modicum of compassion that saves the day. Um, and then there's Raul. Now, Raul uh, is, I think, at least in the Weber version, he's a decent dude. You know, he's just trying, you know, he, he loves Christine. This is a, a childhood friend. They are rekindling a romance. And he is decent and reasonable. Uh, in the book, he's a little more of a petulant child, which I think muddies the, the analysis a little bit. I think it works better with him being a stand-up guy who is doing his best while the woman he loves is being pursued by um, this threatening madman. Turning then to the the music itself, which of course is all bangers all the way down. Uh, Some credit here, not uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote the music. Charles Hart uh, wrote most of the lyrics. There were a few other lyricists who did original passes, uh, but Charles Hart ultimately did all of the rewrites and things that end up in the final version. It really belongs to him. Um, also, some credit to Cameron McIntosh on the production and Marie Bjorgensen, who Marie Bjorgensen did all of the costuming uh, and the set design. Um, so the look of the production is all her. And I think it goes a long way. One of the things I really like about the show, especially the first half of the show, is how kind of inky black um, things are. It really starts off you know, letting you know this is a, uh, a, a horror story. So we start um, with the production of, sorry, there's a, a prologue where we see the, um, the opera house decades later that is, it's in disrepair and bits of it are being auctioned off. And this gives way to, you know, fading back to the, the uh, 1800s when the principal story takes place and a production of a fictional musical called Hannibal or opera, I should say. Um, I really like, the fictional operas that appear in this, there are three of them. There is Hannibal uh, at the beginning. There is Il Muto about halfway through, which is the one where um, eventually the chandelier falls. And then there is the Phantoms opera, Don Juan Triumphant. Uh, I want to camp out on that a little bit because Andrew Lloyd Webber, you know, specifically went out of his way to try and write operatic sounding stuff for the first two, especially in Il Muto really sounds to me a lot like a Mozart opera. Um, Why don't I uh, put in a little clip of that here so you can get a sense of it. Mm -hmm. 
Now contrast that with Don Juan Triumphant. Don Juan Triumphant is referenced in the book. Um, we also see it in the Lon Chaney movie. But the Phantom is very private about this opera that he's writing. And in fact, he even says in the book that he just wants it to be buried with him, that, you know, it's just for him. Uh, you know, maybe Christine will sing parts of it for him in his lair, but it's not for the world. In contrast, in the Weber version, it becomes an important plot point because the Phantom demands that Christine star in this opera. Uh, and it is his vehicle to try and uh, be with her one more time. Uh, it's also another way for him to who screw with uh, the, the the theater managers and Carlotta and Pianji, the, the primary uh, singers in the cast. Um, but one of the cool things about actually getting to hear Don Juan Triumphant is it's a way for the Phantom's psyche to kind of be revealed musically. And one of the really interesting things about it is how discordant it is. Um, it kind of vacillates between these very harsh-sounding um, chords almost sound like someone mashing on on the on an organ um, to soaring beautiful parts, and it really speaks to kind of his his fractured mind and where it's at, and also his genius. Um, these kinds of a you know dissonant sounds might sound of a piece with say Sondheim, um, but this is even more shattered. Um, let me give you a little clip of Don Juan Triumphant. Again, we have this balance between harshness, uh, you know, this the the what sounds like the production of a troubled mind, but also again the the beauty to which the Phantom aspires. Um, let's also focus on some of the other outright bangers in the soundtrack. Um, the title track is an interesting one because it was written first, and it kind of shows. Um, it is definitely, you know, it stands out against the rest of the score, which is very operatic and musical. This is a rock opera kind of a song. I think when Weber originally envisioned this as being closer to things that he had already done, like Starlight Express or Jesus Christ Superstar, um, he thought maybe this would be more like it. In fact, even within the song, uh, there's a discussion of, uh, Christine has a line, those who have seen your face draw back in fear. She hasn't seen his face yet. We haven't established that his face is ugly in the story yet, um, but that's in there because we all know the story. The audience knows it. And again, this almost feels like, you know, if, if this were a James Bond movie, this would be the thing, you know, 10 minutes in after the first action sequence, we would get this over shots of, you know, golden, uh, you know, dancing girls and footlights and stuff. Um, so it is a little bit of an off piece. Um, 
more well-known or perhaps the most beautiful song I think in there that people go to is the music of the night, the Phantom's song that he sings to try and convince Christine of the beauty and the majesty of his subterranean world. The problem with that is there's two problems with it. One, within the song, he is gaslighting her again and trying to work her over psychologically. He sings things like... That is classic abusive behavior. If you're in a relationship and the other person is trying to isolate you away from your friends and family, so you're spending less and less time with them, this should be a giant red flag. Um, as not not as big a red flag as perhaps man who dwells in you know the seventh level of a basement, um, but you know still. Uh, this is something we should be on the watch out for. And again, it says, you know, this, what the Phantom is doing is not love. What the Phantom is doing is trying to control and possess. Um, but also we know he doesn't really believe all of the stuff he's singing about how, you know, beautiful this uh, twilight world is. Because when we go back to the Phantom's lair at the end of the musical, after she unmasks him uh, and he drags her down there, he sings, That's how he really feels about this place. It isn't a magical twilight realm. It is, you know, uh, it is hell to him. He uses that word to describe it. Down that path into darkness deep as hell. Why, you ask, was I bound and chained to this cold and dismal place? Not for any mortal sin, but the wickedness of my abhorrent face. That's what he thinks it is. This is a place where he hides from the world because he is so ugly, he thinks he can't function uh, up on the surface. That is, again, a key element as to why having the Phantom be deformed from birth is better than having him be um, a person who is disfigured and then goes hiding in the opera house. It's implied in the book that the Phantom was used all of his architectural knowledge to help with the construction of the opera house. He built this prison for himself. He built a fortress of solitude where he could hide his face away from the world. Um, and now, of course, he regrets having done that. He does occasionally come to the surface, um, but not much. You know, he, he appears in a graveyard, um, both in the book and in the musical, and tries to you know, communicate with uh, Christine there. But the, by and large, he does remain in his cellar. 
even though we know from his backstory that we get from a character called the Turk in uh, in the book, and that character is replaced by Madame Giri in the musical, that he did at one point go all over the world, off to the Middle East. He learned all of these various crafts that he is now using. Um, and, you know, this retreat of his is not explained. What is it that finally made him decide, I've had enough, I'm going to go live, in, I'm going to make this basement for myself to live in. Um, we don't, we're not told that. But it. I think it makes more sense as the product of a lifetime of being shunned and you know, denied any kind of kindness or affection versus a person who, uh, you know, got burned literally and then uh, just went to go look for a place to, to hang out and happened upon this subterranean layer that was, I guess, built for no apparent reason by somebody. Um, it doesn't work. And in fact, one of the proof, uh, some proof that it doesn't work is the 2004 movie adaptation of the Weber musical by Joel Schumacher. In that version, they do change the Phantom's backstory that he is a child, um, or at least maybe a, a preteen, who is discovered by Madame Giry in a carnival. She helps him escape and helps him escape into the opera house, meaning he grew up in the opera house. He spent his entire life hiding beneath it. So then when did he learn all of the ninja lasso stuff and the, the, the you know, the booby trap making? It doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, the, the, the story is written a certain way and it makes sense as it was put together. Uh, don't go watch the Joel Schumacher version, by the way. If you want to see this, there is a production uh, of the 25th anniversary at uh, the Royal Albert Hall that you can get. Um, and it's, you know, it's not as good as seeing it live, of course, but it's the next best thing. Um, it's a pretty well um, filmed version of the stage show and the leads are terrific in it. Um, they're excellent performances throughout, as you would expect. Uh, so that is kind of the, the primary way to digest it. Anyway, getting back to the Phantom. Um, the look of the Phantom, I think, is really cool, too. The The original version of the story is uh, fairly close to what Lon Chaney did. He's described as looking like a, a skull. Uh, he has no nose. His skin is very thin and yellow. His eyes are yellow and very sunken back. He basically looks like a walking skeleton, um, which is creepy. I, you know, I wouldn't want to look that way. I actually kind of prefer the Weber version. Uh, again, not the the Gerard Butler one because he's barely disfigured and it ruins the story because if he doesn't look that bad, why is he doing all of this stuff? Um, but the stage makeup is really striking and it's cool that it is on one side of his face. If you look at the soundtrack or any of the art, you'll notice that it's a picture of a full mask. Um, whereas in the show, he only wears the iconic mask on the right half of his face. Um, that's because the logo was designed first, and during the course of production, they realized a full mask was a problem um, because, one, it kind of interfered with the sound, their ability to pick up Michael Crawford's actual talking and singing. Um, but more than that, it also, because he had a mask over his whole face, you couldn't get his emotions. You couldn't emote at all. Um, so they went with the half mask, so at least you could see half of his face and, and his, uh, you know, kind of his mouth and chin uh, anytime he was... Uh, uh, on stage. I also think that does a lot for his character. Um, there, he has a certain vanity to him that, you know, he's obviously very conscious of his appearance. And I think there's something about the psychology of a person who is disfigured on one half of his face, you know, trying to imagine if only the right side of my face looked like the left side, I would have a normal life. Um, think about characters like Two-Face in Batman, 
where they do this, the, you know, having a disfigured side of the face. Um, and really, this goes on and on and on to so many villains throughout pop culture. If you show me a villain wearing a mask, the immediate assumption is, oh, underneath that is something pretty gnarly. Um, think about Darth Vader. It's the same thing. What does he look like under there? Um, even cartoon stuff uh, like Cobra Commander. It, it's it's all about, you know, oh, man, it must be something pretty wild underneath that mask. And the makeup on the stage Phantom is pretty intense. And it has to be because it has to read from the back row. You have to look at him and go, oh, yeah, uh, I can see that that face is really twisted and strange. Um, and they go through, you know, however many hours of makeup it takes to put the actor in that every night. But it has to work. It is the linchpin of the entire story. If he, if the, if the disfigurement doesn't look right, if the deformity isn't, you know, extreme enough and realistic enough, um, it it doesn't. You can't justify the Phantom's actions. Everything he does is because of his face. And I think one of the most powerful things in the story is the way Weber weaves this version of it. Is the Phantom at first? you know, you don't know, is this a supernatural thing or not? He is seen doing things that don't seem to have an explanation. The way he, you know, almost, you know, steps through or uh, the mirror into Christine's dressing room. Um, he, you know, we eventually, you know, suss out. Yes, it's a, it's a you know, it's stage magic. Um, but to her, it's real. Um, the way in which Carlotta it loses her voice you know, it's a shame in the movie we see the phantom uh, spiking some kind of throat stuff she sprays. And that's why she starts croaking. In the stage show, it just starts happening. And you don't really, we, we have to assume the phantom did something, but we don't know why. And it's over the course of the show that we kind of, you know, his mystique and his seeming supernatural abilities are stripped away. And we see, you know, he really isn't. Uh, a supernatural person at all. He's just a very sad man um, exercising what talent he has there at the end of the Lon Chaney version. Uh, he is chased by a mob into the street and they have him cornered and he reaches into his coat and he pulls out his fist and everybody goes, ah, they, you know, they take a step back because they don't know what he's got in his hand. He's going to do something to them. And he opens his hand and reveals there is nothing there. It was all an illusion, uh, at which point the mob you know, grabs him and tosses him into the Seine to die, I guess. Um, it's not the ending in the book or the musical, but I do like that idea that, you know, all, all of the things he is doing at the end of the day, it's just all smoke and mirrors. He is just a very sad, you know, a, a beat down man who is trying to do what we all, I think, want. We all want love. We all want connection. He's been denied that his entire life. He says, you know, this face, um, this curse um, that earned a mother's fear and loathing, a mask, my first unfeeling scrap of clothing. That's the only detail he reveals about his, uh, his life. Um, but man, is that a powerful detail, right? He, he has never known one moment of kindness from anybody because of the way he looks. I think, you know, the story has been remade and remade so many times. I, there's possibly room for another, you know, adaptation of it. Um, but I think it, it's lost a little of that because 
our modern relationship to people who have suffered uh, in disfiguring injuries or have deformities, I like to think that has changed over time. I think, you know, if you walk into a Starbucks and there's a person there who has some kind of unusual um, uh, face or a disfigurement, I think the reaction is one of empathy. It's one of understanding. Um, you know, it's it's not to recoil. Uh, there was, you know, stories about when Lon Chaney was unmasked in, in the silent movie, people in the 20s gasping and fainting in the theaters out of fright. Um I don't think we have that relationship to a person who looks like that anymore. Um, and that, that it tells me that, you know, a person who is, you know, disfigured or deformed in that way, while it is unfortunate and obviously no one would want to have that happen to them. Uh, and yes, there are advances in, uh, in plastic surgery that might mitigate some of that. Um, I don't think a person would be subjected to the kind of torment that the phantom was and would not take refuge in a basement and would not use, you know, his, um, his disfigurement as a reason to, um, to hurt others or to try to kidnap people or drop a chandelier on their heads. Um, that's just not the world we live in. And that's good. I think the Phantom of the Opera, um, posits, you know, there is a kinder world where this would not happen. And hopefully we we live in that world now. Um, but I do think the reason people keep coming back to this particular story, this version of it, this is one of the most successful entertainment ventures of all time. The Phantom of the Opera has made more than $6 billion with a B. Um, th- that's incredible compared to things like Avatar. You know, and I don't, and I recognize that this is, it's built up that much over, you know, decades. Um, and I don't know how much of that factors in things like the soundtrack uh, sales of that or or uh, the profits from the Schumacher movie or, or how that works. But still, $6 billion for any entertainment venture is something you can't shake a stick at it. And um, it, the question, of course, as we ask on this podcast is why? Why would people go to this length to see... Um, this show and why do people love it so much? Why are people so in awe of it? Why did it win so many Tonys? Um, I think it's because not only is the music beautiful, um, the late motifs, the, the way the music is structured, um, the story just resonates. I think all of us know what it feels like to be unloved. But I also think a lot of us know, unfortunately, know what it feels like to have unwanted attention uh, foisted upon us. And this story kind of lies at the intersection of both. The Phantom, in his mind, believes he is in love with Christine. Um, And he isn't really in love with her until he lets her go at the end. That's the, the act of a person who does understand the, you know, has empathy for the other person's wants and needs. He finally sees her and realizes, I can't murder her fiance. I can't, if I truly love her, I can't possess her. I can't force her into an ultimatum where she has to marry me or we all die. Um, as it is in the book, he's in the book, he's wired the entire opera house to explode and she has to choose basically him or we all die. Um, in the musical, it's, you know, choose me or Raul dies, but still 
it, those are not the acts of someone who loves another person. It's, it's letting her go. And Christine, for her part, you know, she never, I don't think she really ever loves the Phantom, but she does turn from someone who loathes and fears him to someone who finally sees the person behind the mask. As she says, you know, this, this loathsome, uh, this haunted face holds no horror for me now. It's in your soul that the true distortion lies. Um, you know, she understands, you know, it's not about what you look like. It's what you do. It's your actions. And that really cuts to the bone for him because, you know, he, it's convenient for him to blame the way, uh, everything in his life, right. Is it's because of his face and it's a narcissistic way to go through life. I'm the main character and everyone's mean to me and it's totally unfair. Well, it is unfair that he looks the way he looks. And it is unfair that he lives in a time where people will not be kind and empathetic to him. But it doesn't justify murdering people. It doesn't justify, you know, trying to warp this girl's mind and kidnap her. Um, and he finally sees that. And that's why I think the two have a, they, they reach this mutual understanding that's not love, um, but it is connection. And that, I think, is is what makes the story really work, in addition to all of the other spooky things, the Halloweenish things um, that go with it. But uh, I, I thank you for coming with me on this journey, um, and I hope you enjoyed this episode about The Phantom of the Opera. Uh, so before we wrap things up, a couple of things. Of course, if you like this podcast, please uh, uh Click, like, rate, subscribe. You know what to do when you hear a podcast that you like. Um, but please drop reviews um, on uh, Apple or um, Spotify, wherever you get this podcast, because those reviews help uh, increase the podcast profile, especially uh, here in these early episodes. Again, we are right uh, in the middle of Halloween time, so um, it's a good chance to get this thing going. Uh, also, uh, if you have, of course, if you're nostalgic for the Phantom, if you have things to say about it, uh, about this episode, about our last one on Beetlejuice or about our next episode, which is going to be about thriller, uh, not the entire album, but specifically, uh, the thriller song and its famous music video. Um, if you have things to say about that, please tweet at us at nostalgium pod. Uh, that's where you can find us on the internet. So if you have feedback, I'd love to hear from it. Uh, if you got reviews, I'll read them. If you got feedback, we'll read it. Uh, and we'll talk about your thoughts on these things uh, on the air. So um, that's it. I hope you really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you next time for the next entry in the Stalgium Arcana.